I'm Tor Bear from Enigma. Welcome to Decentralize This. Hello, hello. This is Decentralize This, a new podcast from Enigma where we're looking at our decentralized future and the individuals who are working to build it. As I said in the intro, my name is Tor Bear. I'm the head of growth for Enigma, and I'm obsessed with all of this stuff, uh, with decentralization, with blockchain, and especially with the people working in this space. So I'm really excited to be kicking things off today with Joey Krug of Pantera and Augur. But before we get to that, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you why we're launching Decentralize This and what it's all about and maybe how we're trying to do something different from other podcasts in this space. The goal of the show is to bring on guests from all over the decentralization space. So developers, investors, entrepreneurs, researchers, writers, artists, journalists, people in government and enterprise, all individuals who care deeply about building a more decentralized and sustainable world. The goal is to learn from them about what they think it's really going to take to scale decentralized technologies and create valuable solutions that are used globally. So we're not selling products or investments. We're just trying to explore how all these visions overlap and all these different people with different perspectives can collaborate to build something truly world-changing. They're going to disagree with each other. They're probably going to disagree with me because this is a complicated space with complex technologies a fascinating history, and a really uncertain future. So at Enigma, we're focused on solving privacy and secure computation because we see those as the key missing pieces to a decentralized future. But that's not always going to be the focus on this show because we're going to focus each episode on what our guests are trying to solve and build, what they see as their biggest challenges, and why they care so much about achieving their visions. That all takes me to Joey Krug. Joey is the co-chief investment officer at Pantera, which is a blockchain-focused investment firm and hedge fund. And he's also the co-founder of Augur, which is a decentralized prediction market platform. He's a really smart guy, very open with his perspectives, very rational, I think, and one of my top choices to come on this show. We're going to talk about biotech and self-driving cars, how liquidity and democratizing adoption will drive Augur's success, why investors might need to adjust their time horizons a little bit, and I get them to put odds on a prediction for our decentralized future, when it might happen and how it might actually look. So without any further introduction, here is Joey Krug. Joey Krug, welcome to Decentralize This. We are so thrilled to have you on for this, the first episode. Thanks for having me. So I've been excited to talk to you for a couple of reasons, not just because this is the first episode of Decentralize This that we're recording, but because I think that you bring a couple different perspectives to this space, not just as Uh, somebody who's built decentralized technologies, not just somebody who is investing in decentralized technologies, but both. And I'm really curious to learn how that intersection has shaped the way that you see these technologies in the future of the space. And we're definitely going to get into that. I want to hear about Pantera. I want to hear about Augur. But just to start off, maybe tell the audience who might not be familiar with you, who are you professionally, personally, just who is Joey Krug? Uh, Sure. Yes, my background is primarily in the cryptocurrency space. Got started in 2011 just mining Bitcoin. I came across it on this forum called overclock.net and didn't do a whole lot with it again until 2013 when basically um, I kind of wanted to create something so you could pay a Bitcoin in stores and then pretty quickly realized that Bitcoin wasn't going to take off as a, as a currency for payments. And uh, kind of became frustrated with Bitcoin's direction moving towards digital gold. So I ended up started started uh, this project called Augur in the summer of 2014. And uh, you know the idea behind that basically to create a platform, a trading platform on Ethereum. Uh, so the idea was you can create derivatives contracts on essentially anything from a presidential election to 
you know, how many inches of rain will fall somewhere, uh, to which horse will win a horse race. Um, and we started building that, um, ended up building it on Ethereum. And uh, as part of that, did the first crowd sale on Ethereum back in 2015. Um, and I ended up joining Pantera Capital as co-CIO uh, in the summer of last year. Um, basically because I thought kind of the, the best way to push the space forward was to invest in things that, that really needed solving um, that other people, you know, kind of weren't, weren't really necessarily looking at. Um, yeah, that's, that's my background. That's awesome. When you describe it like that, it sounds like that you're always early, right? You, you were early in understanding uh, the potential of cryptocurrency, even though Bitcoin got away from that initial vision. You were early in building on Ethereum. You were early in doing a crowd sale. Pantera was early, I would say, being one of the first firms to really believe in this thesis, right, around the value of uh, all these decentralized technologies. Uh, mm -hmm. So when you're early in something, usually that means there's something about it that you understand that other people don't. So I'm curious, like, what, why is it, why was it meaningful to you? Like from the beginning, like what, what drew you in on an emotional level to thinking that maybe this is a better way of doing things than things have historically been done? Yeah. So, I mean, if you, if you look at, um, Bitcoin, you know, what got me excited about that was it was, it was the first time I'd seen, um, you know, some, some sort of currency that someone had tried to create where the currency itself wasn't really controlled by a government. Um, you know, you saw this a long time ago with stuff like gold, um, but then currencies kind of migrated away from that. And uh, Bitcoin was kind of the first resurgence I saw of anything really like that. And so that's why I initially got excited about it. Um, and then I kind of realized that um, after noticing that it wasn't going to work very well for payments, ended up realizing that you could really use this tech for a whole lot of other sorts of things uh, besides just payments. And then kind of realized that I think, um, you know, cryptocurrencies are, are essentially a way to create an almost parallel kind of new financial system uh, from scratch. And so that's, that's when I got really interested because the idea is kind of, you know, um, how would you design things differently if you could create, you know, the financial system essentially from first principles uh, starting from, from the ground up. Um, and so if you look at Augur, you know, that's, that's kind of, um, th that's basically a, the project, which is, which is really trying to do that. I love that idea of first principles because, you know, you really are building something in parallel with the financial system that we currently have with the technologies that we current use. Uh, they're all very centralized, I guess, is, is how we would see them, right? You have central banks, you have centralized companies like Google and Amazon and Facebook, uh, but but what you're describing is something decentralized. So, what is what is something decentralized? Like why why is Augur, for example, different uh, from markets that we currently have? What what distinguishes it, and what makes it better? And then maybe also like what kind of challenges does that create that don't exist for centralized products? Yeah, so if you look at, um, I think the simplest way to look at it is, you know, say you want to create um, some sort of new financial product today. Um, you know, say you wanted to create um, some, some sort of market that didn't exist, whether that's, you know, maybe you're predicting the price of a, of a pound of chicken at some point in the future. Um, if you wanted to do that, you know, in the past, you would have to uh, go to a large investment bank um, or, you know, try to convince somebody like the Chicago Mercantile Exchange to write you basically um, a custom agreement. And so that's going to be, you know, millions in, in startup costs to write the custom financial contract uh, to get everything, uh, you know, T's crossed and, and I's dotted, so to speak. And everything's done on a bespoke one-off basis. Um, so it's kind of like how, how things were, uh, how books were written prior to the printing press where you'd have monks write them down, and if you wanted to make a copy, they'd, they'd have to write it down again. And everything was kind of on a one-off basis. There was no really systematized kind of industrial approach uh, towards creating these things, and those things being books. If you look at the financial system today, it's essentially kind of the, the way books were prior to the printing press. You've seen parts of the of finance get automated, but it's really only been on the trading side. Um, you know, so most trades take place electronically th these days. Um, you know, most 
or actually all orders are processed electronically these days. But you still have, you know, a three-day settlement time. You still have all these things that, that slow things down. And nothing's really been automated on the creation of new financial contracts. Um, the only things that have been automated are, are trading existing ones. And so if you look at something like Augur, what it's trying to do is create essentially, you know, the equivalent of the printing press, uh, but for finance. So the idea is if you want to create a new sort of financial contract on something that doesn't exist today, you can do it in a few clicks with, you know, a point and, a point and click uh, graphical user interface um, with, you know, very minimal underlying knowledge of how financial markets even work. Um, and, and that's essentially the root of the idea. And the benefits of that are that it really democratizes access to finance. It also democratizes access to trading on these things because um, it all takes place on Ethereum, which is a basically global uh, ledger that kind of anyone can access. And then it also drops the fees a lot. Um, so, you know, fees of, of financial intermediaries are pretty high. Um, there's even a paper that came out a year or two ago uh, that says that they've actually, they're actually higher than they were uh, back in the 70s. They're just better hidden uh, today. And so that's kind of the last benefit of something like Augur is you get lower fees because in the blockchain world, the idea is that your fees kind of go down to the bare economic minimum. So if it costs a certain amount to operate a system, you know, people will basically operate it at marginal cost with some very, very minimal profit because as soon as you can make a profit, someone else can swoop in uh, and do things cheaper. Got it. This all makes total sense to me in terms of the benefits. And it sounds like you associate decentralization very much with democracy and democratization. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. There's some people who see decentralization as more of maybe a libertarian ideal that, you know, it's liberating us from some sort of centralized governing force. Uh, is that a way that you see this or is it really more about returning power uh, to people by democratizing like access to financial markets and things like that? Yes. I mean, I think, I think they're kind of uh, very similar concepts. Um, so if you look at the concept of democratizing access to something, and then if you look at the concept of, you know, libertarianism, uh, they're both very much aligned uh, in the sense that they're trying to kind of give power back to the people uh, to do something that's either been, you know, prohibitively expensive in the past or just prohibitively difficult to do. So let me ask you this then. In the case of financial markets, are there are there benefits to having centralized organizations? And are these are these benefits that Augur has or doesn't have? Like do, do these some of these do some of these benefits extend to what you're still doing, or are we building an entire alternate universe here? Well, so if you look at the benefits of centralization, it makes it easier to do things because you can kind of just trust, um, you know, one third party. So I think in, in essentially any environment where you kind of have a central third party or, or even you know, if you look at the political side of things, if you have a dictator, uh, provided they're benevolent, uh, you know, provided they're good, everything works great. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the time when somebody becomes bad that it all kind of falls apart. And, um, and so that, that's kind of the, the core thing here is that even in the regular financial system, uh, you know, if you look at what happened in 2008, um, there are lots of entities that were, you know, regulated by the government, um, had kind of the full force of the law behind them and, uh, people still lost lots of money. Um, and you know, even some of the people who, who've operated, you know, like clearing and settlement in the financial markets in the past, uh, have went under. Now, usually people get their funds at the end of the day because, you know, the government can, can kind of uh, force that that happens. Uh, but sometimes you still lose some or, or you lose on, uh, you know, the time where your funds are locked up until that full process can play out. Um, but those are kind of the benefits of centralization is that it's, it's pretty smooth uh, as long as things, you know, are, are, are functioning. Uh, so if you look at something like Augur, um, you know, it's, it's hard to make a decentralized system smooth because it's kind of built by design uh, to not allow these sort of, you know, dictators to kind of take hold. And, um, and so, yeah, if you, if you look at something like Augur, you know, things are a bit slower than the regular financial system. Um, right now, things are a bit more expensive even because, uh, you know, Ethereum isn't very scalable right now. Uh, the cost to get access to cryptocurrency is pretty high. Uh, these, are these are problems that I think can be solved 
Um, and, you know, part of the reason I joined Pantera is, is really to invest in solving those problems. Because I think those are, you know, scalability and, and access to crypto, um, basically getting from the old financial world into the new one are two problems that need to be solved for stuff like Augur to, to kind of be seamless. Great. And we will absolutely be getting into like what you see as the biggest barriers towards adoption of decentralized technology and also creating this decentralized technology. I think scalability is absolutely a huge issue that gets raised a lot. I'm going to interject a bit of my personal perspective here because I think it's relevant to Augur. I graduated college in 2009, which uh, was right around this financial crisis that you're talking about. And I was an economics major. And I think in any other year, I might have ended up going into banking. Uh, and then suddenly I woke up one day during uh, this whole recruiting push and banks no longer existed. I, I had a friend who had a Lehman Brothers interview uh, that was suddenly canceled because the banks ceased to exist. Uh, and this also happened to Bear Stearns and a couple of others. So that, that was my first introduction into the existing financial system. But I'll tell you what I did after that. Uh, I became a derivatives market maker. So I worked for five years in Chicago uh, as a derivatives market maker. And these are exactly the types of markets that I was looking at. I was looking at these sort of illiquid speculative markets where people were trying to put probabilities on things that they didn't totally understand, but there wasn't a great fundamental framework always for understanding them. So I know what the challenge is in making these markets work, even in centralized systems. So I imagine that as a decentralized system, you know, I don't think you've solved the fundamental issue of like, how do you value something like the probability of a, of a certain leader being elected in a certain country? And, and I don't think you're, you're necessarily trying to do anything crazy different except open it up to more people. So can you talk about something that I know a lot about, but our listeners might not? Can you talk about liquidity? and why liquidity matters, and how adoption of Augur relates to liquidity, and, and why you think that could make this a really powerful application. Yeah, so I think liquidity is kind of a, the most important thing um, when it comes to financial markets. And you know, the concept of liquidity, um, for anyone who's not familiar, is basically um, you know, it, it, the simple kind of analogy in the regular world, and, and kind of why you get the term liquidity is, if you look at a, a river, and that river's dry. Well, that river basically has no water and has no liquidity. And if that river has lots of water in it, fish can swim. Uh, you know, if it's wide enough, you can, uh, you know, go boating in it. You can do lots of interesting things. And so if you take that weird analogy and apply it to finance, liquidity is the concept of, you know, if I show up to a market that I want to trade in, you know, the question is, is it liquid? Is there someone I can actually trade with at a fair price? And so to take that again and make it even more concrete, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, say you want to bet on the U.S. presidential election and you show up and you, and you say, OK, you know, I think uh, Trump has a 40 percent chance of winning in 2020. And so you show up to the market and you want to bet, you know, $5,000 and you show up to the market and someone says, hey, I, I'm willing to take the other side of that bet. But there's only $100 on the other side. That market's an illiquid market because you wanted to bet, you know, 5000 and there's only $100 in liquidity on the other side. Uh, now, if you showed up to that market and there were people saying, you know, there's 500,000 on the other side saying, hey, we, we want to bet against Trump. And you're saying, yeah, I'm definitely willing to take the other side. I want to put 5,000 down. That market, from your perspective, is a liquid market because you can basically trade as much as you want, which is 5,000, and you can do it at a fair and reasonable price. And uh, so if you look at liquidity in both centralized and decentralized systems, it's very important because uh, if a market's not liquid, people won't use it. And so if you look at, you know, okay, well, how do you attract liquidity to a market? Um, you know, of course, the paradoxical thing is, well, liquidity attracts more liquidity to markets. Uh, that's one thing. Um, but the other thing is, you know, one is making it, I think, so you can trade on things that you can't trade on other places. So I think that's one unique advantage something like Augur will have is there are no liquid markets for some of the stuff that you can trade on Augur just because no one's bothered to create them before or it's been too expensive to create them on traditional centralized rails. So that's one example. The other thing I think is um, as, uh, as these blockchains scale and as it becomes easier to get fiat onboarded, um, I think there start to become use cases where Augur is much cheaper than the regular world. 
Uh, so an example of this is if you're, if anyone is familiar with the concept of betting, there's this thing called the payout ratio. And what it means is say you bet hundred dollars. If the payout ratio is 92%, that means on average, if you're an unsophisticated better who's just throwing money randomly, you'll get about $92 back if you do it over enough, you know, random trials. And uh, you can think of the payout ratio as effectively kind of the fees that a system charges. And so right now, due to kind of all the inefficiencies, Augur's payout ratio is pretty, pretty low. Um, it's like, you know, 85 to 88%. And in the centralized world, um, payout ratios for regular bookies are about 92%. Payout ratios for betting exchanges are about 95%. Um, and so I think once Augur gets more competitive than that, then all of a sudden, um, it makes a lot of sense for you know liquidity providers to trade there as well as end users because they're paying much lower fees. Um, and I think eventually the fees on Augur will be you know sub one percent, um, where at that point it's like a ten x uh, better better place to trade. So I think we've very clearly established that adoption and scale are critical to a platform like Augur. Whether it was decentralized or not, it you know liquidity is critical to the platform. Having people want to show up and speculate on these markets or make these markets uh, is how you actually get to the truth of the matter on, on the things that you're trying to price. Uh, so let's focus in on this idea then of how do we get dApps to scale? Because even though Augur is one of the most highly adopted decentralized applications out there right now, on Ethereum or otherwise, I think we can both agree that there's plenty of room for it to grow uh, just because I think we're still only in like the hundreds of users. But in the in the traditional centralized finance world, you know, you've got trillions, quadrillions of dollars worth of derivatives and, uh, and traditional assets sloshing around, to use the liquidity analogy again, sloshing around every day. Is it is it something that we're going to get to in the near future, in the far future. I think something we're trying to establish on, on, on this show is how far out is some of this stuff? And if it was going to be sooner, why, why would that have happened? What, what did it take to bring this future closer into the present? Yeah, so I think you know, if you look at liquidity side of things, you, you basically have two barriers. Um, you have the scalability one, which I'll address in a moment. And then you also have the fiat on-ramp one, uh, which I think is an underappreciated barrier that nobody's really talking about. And so to, so to make it concrete, let's use a real-world example. We're talking about, you know, we're talking about kind of average consumers or even, say, the average trader here. Um, if they're fresh to crypto, uh, the place they're going to go buy crypto is probably a site like Coinbase. And they're probably not going to know to go to, like, pro.coinbase.com or gdax.com or, or whatever you know, they're going to go to regular Coinbase. And the first thing they're going to do is either input their debit card or connect their bank account to buy crypto. And the fees right now to do that are about 1.5% for your bank account and about 4% uh, for the debit card side of things. And if you look at that payout ratio number we mentioned earlier, and if you think about a regular, kind of the best-in-class regular uh, betting exchange, you can get a payout ratio of 95%. Well, if you're taking 4% off the top, just to get into crypto, um, a lot of the, the purpose and a lot of the edge has been defeated. So then the question becomes, okay, well, how do you get those rates down uh, from being that high? Uh, part of the reason they're high is, you know, Coinbase has to make money. But part of the reason they're high also is, you know, if you look at fraud rates uh, for crypto, it's a bit different. So you think, if you think about the regular world, um, you know, transactions are reversible. But in crypto, once you get your crypto, um, if the transaction gets reversed, the merchant, or in this case, you know, Coinbase, basically has to cover the loss. And so that's part of why the fees are so high. Um, so one, you know, edge there would be to try to innovate on getting fraud rates lower. That's a really simple example of something you could do, I think, is, you know, have people upload their bank statements. And if you haven't uploaded their bank statements, you can see, have they charged back in the past? If they haven't, you should charge them a really low fee because they're pretty trustworthy. Uh, if they have, you're going to want to either not allow them to use your site or charge a really high fee. Um, and so I think we'll see fees for this sort of stuff, you know, sub 1% um, within the next six months. Um, I think that sort of stuff is is happening and is happening pretty quickly. Um, I think I think it's just kind of takes a bit of time. The other area 
is um, scalability. And if you look at the scalability side of things, you basically have you know this concept of layer one or the underlying blockchain. You have the concept of layer two, um, which is you know scaling using using uh, protocols above the layer one. Um, and if you look at the kind of status quo of scalability, if you look at what Ethereum's doing, uh, they're trying to do this stuff called sharding, where you basically split the network into a bunch of groups, and each user, each you know node doesn't have to process all the transactions. Uh, so that's kind of the innovation there. That's probably you know three years away uh, at best, in in my opinion. Um, and so if you look at what's what's lower hanging fruit that you that you can do before then, uh, there is some stuff coming out in 2019 that I think will improve the scalability situation by quite a bit. Uh, so one of these projects is called BlocksRoute. Um, it's basically improving the networking layer. Um, another project is is called you know Arbitrum, which is a layer two scalability thing. Um, and if you look at why scalability uh, hasn't really taken off so far, um, let's let's uh, focus in on a concrete example. So you take Augur. Um, everyone talks about payment channels, state channels, Lightning, all that sort of stuff. Say you want to use that on Augur today. Well, the problem is those sort of channels have to be over collateralized. Um, so if you have an order book with you know a bunch of orders on each side, who's, whoever is processing the trades has to have double the collateral. The entire system has to have double the collateral uh, that you would require in a system without state channels. So for trading, it's just kind of a non-starter because the collateral requirements are too high uh, to make it worth doing. Um, and so figuring out a way to scale, figuring out a way to scale things without requiring a bunch of collateral uh, would be one area that people can innovate on on the scalability side. The other area is trying to solve these kind of core fundamental problems on layer one. Uh, but I think we'll see more kind of layer two stuff happen uh, in 2019 that doesn't require this excess collateral. Yeah, that is fascinating. I, and of course, uh, Enigma, it's something that we think about a lot from the privacy side as well as from the scalability side. And I I think the timeline that you quoted, you know, a few years, uh, it doesn't sound unrealistic. It sounds like a very realistic estimate. And that's what I would expect from you because you're familiar with prediction markets. You want to, You want to say something that's actually defensible, right? You're not a pundit. You're, you're here to actually make a, a correct prediction about this stuff. But I think that's a good segue into, uh, I want to talk about Pantera and, and your work there. Because that's, that's another thing that requires having a very accurate assessment of not just where the space is going, but when and who and which technologies. Um, so maybe talk a bit about how, how does this perspective that you have as somebody who's built these technologies um, and as somebody who's been in the space early for a while, how has that experience affected your, your personal investment thesis? How would you approach uh, an opportunity in the decentralization space and, and think about like what, what makes this a good opportunity? Yeah. So I mean, I think, um, you know, one thing that makes this, a good, this space a good opportunity is, um, a lot of the investors in it are, are pretty short, short-sighted and, and very kind of near-term focused. Um, and so if you can have an investment thesis that, that plays out over more of kind of a three-year time horizon, um, I, I think that's where you can you know, make a lot more money than if you have an investment thesis that's, that's kind of based on month-to-month or, or you know, something over the next four to six months. Um, the, the kind of countervailing point to that is it's, it's – uh, hard to get investors to understand, you know, hard to get LPs to understand uh, the concept of, of kind of waiting, you know, have, having something that has a three-year investment time horizon, um, even if you're in an asset class, it's pretty liquid. Um, but I think the crypto space is kind of so inefficient right now that it's really difficult to make money on, on the short-term time horizon. Uh, so to give you an example, like if you look at, you know, Tesla stock, um, you know, you, you could have bought the stock when it was down, you know, 8%. Uh, on the news that Elon smoked weed because you know that has very little kind of there's no reason Tesla stock should have fell by like five billion dollars that day. Uh-huh. Um, and then uh, you know on the on the SEC news it, it made sense to sell. So um, you know it, it made sense to buy it. He thought there was a really high probability of him settling. Um, those are all kind of very fundamental things that affect prices. But in the crypto markets we haven't gotten to that fundamental stage yet. Right. Um, and so the the prices for things I don't think are very they're not very rational. They're not like, um, 
you know, they're not even like as rational as a presidential election market is. They're really just kind of, you know, people are buying things because they like the name or they like the color or they like the way it sounds, uh, but it, but not necessarily due to any any fundamental reason. Um, whereas what we're doing at, you know, Pantera is buying things that we think uh, have fundamental value and, and will be around, you know, a few years from now and that will garner uh, a large share of users in the space. So this is what's interesting. And, and, and you brought up a really good point, which is that people have these short-term investment horizons right now. And you're saying that you're investing, and of course, in some industries, including this one, we might say that a three-year time horizon is short-term, just not maybe relative to what some investors are talking about, right? So, mm-hmm. but then if you look at tokens, if you look at the secondary markets for these tokens, uh, this has really only been something that's had serious liquidity for the past year. And you're asking people to take a long-term perspective on the technology. So you can understand why some traditional investors have a hesitation towards embracing an asset class where the technology theses play out over multiple years, but the asset class has only been around for with any meaningful liquidity for like 12 months. And in that time frame, it's gone up by an order of magnitude and fallen by an order of magnitude as well. Uh, so what do you think? Are, are people starting to, despite that, volatility, despite the fact that we're so, again, early in all of this, do you see that people are starting to embrace this idea of, you know, tokens or coins themselves having value? Or do you think people are just really stuck thinking about how financing has been traditionally done for these sort of like bleeding edge tech companies? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think people don't understand that given the stage of the ecosystem today, it's it's much more like biotech than it is like software. Um, in, in the sense that, you know, you have a pretty long time horizon. Um, you're you're having to solve, you know, research problems uh, to make your product progress. Um, so if you, if you look at, you know, Web 2.0 companies, um, you know, they're basically solving like traditional business problems where, you're trying to scale your user base. There's no real kind of fundamental um, unsolved computer science problem in building Snapchat out. You know, it's, it's kind of a, a well-worn path that, that people have done multiple times before. And you know, the playbook is basically acquire users, iterate on the products, improve it, uh, et cetera. Whereas in crypto, you know, if you look at like something like scaling Augur out, um, well, part of that for that to happen, you have to kind of solve, you know, layer one and layer two scalability, um, both of which are kind of open research problems. And, uh, and, and so if you look at it from that lens, it, it looks a lot more like biotech where, you know, you're, you're buying these things. It's also actually really similar to biotech because biotech companies tend to be publicly traded even while they're still in trials um, or even when they have new drugs in their pipeline. Uh, whereas if you look at, you know, regular startups, uh, you know, Facebook didn't go public until well after they had, you know, hundreds of millions of users and, and uh, you know, huge amounts of capital versus uh, if you look at biotech companies, there's not that much demand uh, from private capital to fund them. So they tend to go public uh, much sooner than, than, you know, your average company would. I think that's a really insightful analogy, you know, and, and something that probably a lot of people investing in this space might not think a lot about because they might be familiar with speculative tech. They might be familiar with the dot-com boom. They may not be looking as much uh, at these sort of parallel fields, but I think that's right. Uh, and, and these, I, I guess there's a distinction to be made, right? Like these are public companies and yes, they're, they're in these stages of trials where you don't really know if any of this is going to be worth anything at all. And mm-hmm. you might get opposing news. It might come out one day. It's like, oh, the drug was approved. And then the next day being like, oh, but it killed 10 people. You know, th- things happen pretty quickly in that industry too. Do you, do you think, what's it going to take? Again, I love asking these what's it going to take questions, but what's it going to take to have, you know, these nascent crypto markets respond to fundamentals the same way that these traditional public markets do? Is it just a matter of liquidity? Is it a matter of investor education? Why why are these markets not working the way that that you might think? Because you would even say like at least biotech companies are responding to fundamentals, but crypto is not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, 
I mean, I think it, a part of it's because the space is so new that um, there haven't been a lot of those sort of kind of fundamental um, news stories that have happened. I mean, you, you know, you look at uh, Ethereum, okay, there, there was a fundamental event when Ethereum launched and it, and it functionally worked. Um, you know, you kind of saw same, similar fundamental events uh, for Maker launching, similar fundamental event for Augur launching, uh, same thing for Zero X. Um, there's maybe a, you know a handful of others, um, but there but there's not it's not like you know the biotech markets where you know every month there's multiple companies that are you know that you're learning whether a drug made it to the next stage of trials or you're figuring out trial results uh, or you're figuring out uh, whether the FDA you know approved the drug or whether they accepted their new drug application all this sort of stuff you you see happening uh, you know quite a few times a month for a bunch of companies. In this space, is so new that you've only seen a handful of these sort of fundamental things actually happen. Um, and so that makes it really easy for the market as a whole to, to decouple from fundamentals. Um, I, think, I think that's a lot of it. And then as well as just, um, you know, there, there's not really anything that I would say in, in the biotech uh, analogy that has made it, uh, you know, through phase three trials, um, so to speak, and, and is being, you know, widely used by the public. Uh, and, and if you look at crypto, that looks like, you know, a decentralized application, uh, you know, hitting, hitting, you know, scalability because the underlying network is scaled and getting kind of a good critical mass of users. And I think once that happens, then the market has stuff to look at uh, for how to value things uh, better than, than it does today. So let me ask you this. What's going to be the first decentralized application uh, that's going to have millions of users you don't have to pick a name i'm just saying like what would be the use case what would be the industry what do you, what is your prediction best as you can make it uh at the dap level this goes beyond like you know which protocol is going to make it through phase three trials I, i'm more asking like wh where do you think there's going to be again early adoption but at least early adoption at the scale of millions or maybe just hundreds of thousands would be a start yeah, so I think I think um, yeah, I think, it, I think it does come down to to kind of trading use cases. Um, so I think the, the kind of best best candidate for actual consumers, I think, uh, really is you know basically Augur because um, it, it has something that um, it's really wide a market. You know, financial derivatives on on essentially anything is a really wide open market, and. Um, you have kind of huge, huge swaths of people uh, who don't have access to certain categories of markets. Uh, like the entire continent of China doesn't have access to most U.S. financial markets. Um, and if you look at, you know, betting in China, uh, the only kind of real betting operator there is, is Bet365, and they have 10% market penetration uh, with essentially zero marketing. So I think if you look at, you know, what could actually attract real users, um, you have, you know, Betting and trading use cases, um, you know, you, you could have like some gambling use cases, so stuff like Funfair, Virtue Poker, um, more kind of generalized trading stuff like uh, Zero X. Um, other than that, um, those, those I think what the biggest use cases are going to be. I, I find it hard to see kind of non-financial use cases for blockchain tech. I think we'll see some that are like multi-sided marketplaces. Uh, so stuff like Origin, which is building like kind of a decentralized sharing economy app, uh, something like that could see millions of users. Um, but I think really, if, if you look at the tech, I think it's mostly going to going to revolutionize uh, finance and financial transactions and things that are maybe one step removed from that. So stuff like decentralized Airbnb, but probably not stuff that's more than more than one or two steps removed from a direct financial transaction. Got it. I. I mean, I, I've heard that perspective a lot. I think we're going to have a lot of people on this show who would, who would share that perspective closely, who are either building dApps in the financial space uh, or who are investors who have taken that thesis. Um, I, want to, I want to pivot a bit and ask about one other thing that's sort of Tesla-related, but not directly. Um, but, I, but I know you, you have a Tesla, right? Yeah. Do you love it? Uh, yeah, I do. I've been in one Tesla. It was it was a nice, smooth ride. Not like the stock, but the car was good. Uh, so I want to ask you something about uh, an analogy I've been picking over in my head. You, you used this great biotech analogy. I have another. 
which is that decentralization is a little bit like autonomous driving. Uh, and there's levels. And these levels of autonomous driving are associated with safety. Uh, and they very much depend on the technological advances that we make. So, you know, at level zero, it's, you know, human driver, the way that we've got it today. You know, one person behind the wheel of the car, hopefully they've been trained and licensed to operate the vehicle, all the way to, you know, level 10, or I think I read an article on this. Maybe it's only five levels, but yeah, one, five. five levels. Once you get there, um, the car is driving itself. It works flawlessly. You know, it sees pedestrians and deer when they cross the street and, and everything is fine. And somewhere in between, you know, there's all these phases we have to get through between the, the manual control of the human to the perfect control of the AI. And when I think about the decentralization space, I think about centralization at one end, phase zero. We're trying to get to maybe this aspirational uh, stage five goal of this perfectly decentralized application that works on its own, where we've democratized trust, it's open, it's democratic, uh, and there's a lot of things that happen in between that are technological advances or social advances, government advances, you know, whatever it's going to take to get there. So I, I have two questions related to that. One is, do you think we are trying to get to stage five? Is there some sort of perfect decentralization we're trying to get to? And, you know, if so, what stage are we at now? And, you know, is it scalability? Do you think scalability is like what moves us to the next stage? Or is it something that's not technological? Is it, is it a social norm that needs to change? Is, is it a political movement that needs to occur? Like, how would we move further from these early stages of decentralization to, to something more robust and safe? I should, I should emphasize safe because we know decentralizing things is hard and launching on mainnet is terrifying. So answer those. I, I'm really curious. Yes. I mean, I think if you think about it, uh, in the, in the you know, autonomous driving analogy, you know, I would say, um, <clears throat> you know, level one being kind of the full human driver uh, or most centralized, we're kind of at level two in crypto, which is where you have, um, and in the self-driving analogy, that's where you have, you know, like cruise control and, you know, sometimes the car will, will break if it realizes that you're going to run into the car in front of you, that sort of stuff, but basically nothing else besides that. Um, or, or that's kind of like between level one and level two. Um, that's kind of where we're at right now uh, in, in the cryptocurrency space um, <clears throat> where you have a lot of people kind of building decentralized apps that are relatively centralized. Uh, you know, the, you access through a centralized website uh, that's kind of hosted on someone's central server and they kind of have lots of centralized guardrails or, uh, you know, M of N multisigs that, that kind of uh, save the day if things go wrong. And then um, on the opposite side of the spectrum, you have, you know, tier level five, which is, fully autonomous driving or in, or in the crypto case, fully decentralized where, you know, there's, there's no central server, um, you know, everything's kind of peer to peer. Um, and I think if you look at where we're at now, we're kind of between level one, and level two, and the things that help push the needle are basically improving scalability, I think is, is the big one because it makes it a lot easier to do things in a decentralized fashion uh, once you improve throughput and, and scalability. Uh, but I think if you look at self-driving, um, there's kind of two approaches. There's the approach Tesla has, which is to um, kind of gradually add things until you just eventually end up one day at level five. Uh, so like Tesla right now with their latest V9 autopilot um, is more or less, you know, at, at level three autonomous driving on highways. Um, it can change lanes on its own. It can take an exit on its own. It can, it can really kind of navigate on the interstate on its own. Uh, you just have to pay attention. Um, and uh, for crypto, the equivalent of that is, I think, getting, getting more throughput and scale. But the other approach in self-driving is to just start off at level five. And, you know, your car has tons of hardware and junk in the, in the trunk and, and, like, pretty much, you know, the, the entire back of it is literally just computer hardware um, and tons of sensors. But it does functionally drive on its own. And that's basically the Waymo, Waymo approach, which is a subsidiary of, of Google or Alphabet. Um, and I think if you look at crypto, um, that, that's actually kind of the approach Augur is taking, is you have everything be fully decentralized out of the gate. Um, and as tech improves, it, it gets easier and better to use. Um, 
and it's, and it's, you know, not as bad of an experience. You don't have all this, you know, garbage in your trunk anymore. Uh, the analogy for crypto is, you know, you don't have to wait, you know, three hours for, for auger to sink that sort of thing. Um, that's, 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 I think kind of the analogy. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, that's a phenomenal way to extend the analogy beyond Tesla as well. There, there are multiple approaches in the self-driving space as there are multiple approaches within the crypto space. Some people are building, you know, these full stack blockchains or full stack decentralization platforms. And some people are very much focused on these elements of the solution, you know, the, these layer two, as we're calling them. Uh, so I, I want to know though, is there something that could change, you know, beyond the technology, but like think about self-driving cars. If, if some state government were to say, you know, these are all outlawed because they ran over a pedestrian somewhere in Arizona and you can never use your self-driving car again in this state, that would have an impact on the way that the space developed. It would definitely have an impact on adoption. So is there something similar that, you know, is going to, I want to focus on what would improve things, not what would slow things down, because there's been plenty of that. But is there something that would happen in the decentralization space that you think would be a huge boost towards getting further along towards these these more decentralized solutions actually being adopted? And and let's not use the financial like fiat on-ramp answer because we have that one. Is there anything else that could be done from like a social or a political standpoint? You know, I think the only things that would really speed it up is is if people were kind of you know, there's kind of two aspects here, right? There's there's when uh, there's the aspect of people wanting to use it <clears throat> because it's truly a better experience and it and it lets you do something that you couldn't do before. Um, I think that's kind of a, a few years away. The other aspect is where you're essentially forced to use it. <clears throat> so an example of this would be, you know, if um, if some totalitarian government did something uh, that maybe you really want to just be forced to use crypto uh, by the nature of it. Um, so an example of this would be, you know, say, um, say for instance, um, the U.S. government decided to have really, really high negative interest rates uh, on your bank account. Well, that would immediately force people to figure out how the heck to use crypto and how to put their money into it because who wants to be losing, you know, 5% a year, uh, basically being compensated by by the government. Or in Argentina, um, losing 5% a day. Or not yeah. but Venezuela more so, yeah. Yeah, I think for, the, for them, though, you, you kind of run into the, I guess the on-ramp problem always exists here, but I think people would, people would figure out ways to, to do things just because they, they don't want to um, basically pay the negative interest rate. That's one example. Um, there's other examples that you can imagine, like, uh, you know, say you had a really totalitarian regime uh, that prohibited you from buying certain books uh, or something like that. You know, you could use crypto to kind of evade that, you know, buy them with Zcash, that sort of thing. Um, so I think those are kind of two examples. But I think it's more likely we'll see things go primarily through the first route, which is you kind of get the ability to do more things and, and it's a smoother experience uh, than it was, you know, in the past. And that's where I think we'll get more adoption of crypto rather than, you know, the totalitarian route. But it's definitely a, a possibility. It's going to be fascinating to watch whether people are either forced by circumstances to adopt decentralized technologies or whether there's going to be a friendly government that, you know, maybe it's some sort of mandated identity solution, but it's going to be a really interesting few years to watch going forward. I, I think that this is a great place to leave it because we've, we've talked about your perspective uh, from the point of view of having built Augur, from the point of view of having invested in some of these enabling technologies that are going to help us get closer to this dream of decentralization. And we've talked about the value of what that future might be, how it's going to democratize, democratize, my gosh, democratize certain elements uh, of our society, especially finance. Um, so then I only have one last question, which is, you know, you're, you're a betting man. What are the odds we actually pull this off? You know, make me a market. I'm not sure. But let's say, you know, what are the odds that we get through this phase three trial in a few years? And we look back and we say, you know, that happened exactly like Joey just said, that, that it was three years and we finally saw some real movement towards solving scalability. And we've seen some apps that have gotten meaningful adoption at scale. 
Yeah, I mean, on the on the three year time horizon, I I would put it at maybe, you know, fifty five, sixty percent is what I would actually bet on it at. Um, on a on a longer time horizon, I would I would put it you know much much higher. I think there's like a ninety percent chance something will happen here, uh, but you know the the timeline could be wrong. It could end up taking longer to solve these you know problems than we, than I thought. You you sound just like an options market maker. I, I know a lot of those. Well, I, I think that's a perfectly respectful market that I'm not going to try to trade on. Uh, but everything from this episode has been gold, Joey. So I really appreciate your perspective, your analogies. Uh, and I really encourage you to um, continue to write on these topics if you can or keep coming on shows like this because I think a lot of people in our audience are, are going to benefit a lot from the perspective you've shared here. Uh, if there's anything you want to leave people with, uh, things that they can go check out, websites or, uh, or, or anything else that you've created, uh, this would be a great time to pitch those. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if you want to, uh, if you have any questions or ever want to get in contact with me, just feel free to shoot me an email. Uh, it's just joeykrug at, at gmail.com. Um, yeah, that's, that's it, I think. Nice. Well, uh, again, thanks for coming on and for the audience, uh, you heard him. You can email him your questions. Uh, you can also learn more about Augur and Pantera. I'll share some links in the episode description below. But Joey, thank you for taking the time. It was a really wonderful conversation and I hope we do it again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you want to learn more about Enigma, you can visit us at www.enigma.co. Uh, you can go to our blog at blog.enigma.co. You can join our Telegram group at t.me slash Enigma Project. Uh, if you're curious about anything we talked about in the podcast today, make sure you follow the links below in the episode description. Make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or follow us on Medium so you don't miss our next awesome episode and interview. Otherwise, thank you for listening. We hope to see you next time on Decentralize This. I'm Tor Bear. Have a great day.